Well, good morning. Now, I'm going to say most of you don't know who I am. Some of you do that do wish you didn't know who I am. Um, but my name is Jacob, and I'm the youth guy at Covenant Church. Um, so that means that I always, as a youth director, I always enjoy opportunities to speak to people without being covered with powder or syrup or Crisco a couple weeks ago. That was, ugh, still trying to get that off. But, but I, so do, I do thank you guys for having me here this, this morning. Uh, we will be looking to the book of Isaiah for our pastors this morning, and we will be in Isaiah 56. So if you have your Bibles, I would please turn there. Um, Isaiah 56, and we'll be going to the first eight chapters, starting with verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness will be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this, and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will, shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants. Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted in my altar, for my house shall be called a house house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. So as you all know, the last couple months have been turbulent. Um, obviously for New City Church as a whole, but I'm sure that many of us have also had other issues and problems in our lives, whether it be family issues with the kids or parents or whatever that may be, uh, work stresses, financial hardships. And it's kind of scary sometimes when we think about, like, what comes next? What what will the future hold? And, like, sure, we can make plans, but everything could change in an instant. Because the future is always full of mystery. It's despite our best efforts to meticulously plan every single second, I think a lot of homeschool moms try that, it just doesn't work. And if we're honest, we don't even know what's going to happen later today. Right? The future is always a mystery. But I really want to encourage this this morning that there is one who is not surprised by what the future holds. Who, the one to use the old Sunday school song, there's the one that holds the world in his hands. And in Isaiah 56, God gives us this wonderful concrete truth about something that he's doing and something that he will continue to do. In the midst of mysteries and unknowns, God is gathering people to himself and he's bringing them into his everlasting house. We don't know what this coming hurricane season is going to be, like how it's going to work out. We don't know how the economy will turn. We don't know what global conflicts will take place. 
But we know that God is going to save sinners and that he will remain faithful to his people. He will give sight to the blind. He will give hearing to the deaf. And he will raise the dead to life in the name of King Jesus. If you watch any sort of news or anything at all, you know that the world has a lot of problems. And I think sometimes when we look at the state of the world and we just say, man, God, what are you doing? Like, why haven't you just come back yet? Why aren't you fixing everything at this time? But I think the answer is actually pretty clear. That God's work here on earth is still not done. That he's still working and he's still transforming lives, even as we speak, speak now. So right away, I want to just give us a little practical encouragement here that if, as we minister to our family members or friends or coworkers or neighbors, that there's still time. That no one is you know, too far gone to be saved. And that just because you have a friend that has accept, hasn't accepted Christ yet, that doesn't mean that there's no hope. I really just want to encourage us to keep praying, to keep ministering, Because what this passage is going to show us is that God is actively gathering people to himself every day. I would say probably the major theme of Isaiah 56, 1 through 8, is this gathering work of God and what that means and what that looks like. Now, this isn't gathering in the sense of like God's picking up corn stalks, right? This isn't a farmer's almanac entry. But gathering as in sensing God is finding sinners who are in need of salvation, and he's bringing them to himself. So what, my, our question, our kind of our goal, our mission this morning is, what does Isaiah 56 teach us about this gathering process? And I'm a Presbyterian, so naturally I found three things, which is always amazing. So the gathering process, it's first, it's covenantal. It's boundary-breaking, and then it's complete. Right, so that, that's our goal. It's a, it's a heady goal, but I think we can get through it together. All right, so first, the gathering of the Lord's people is covenantal. So I, I work at Covenant Church. We like covenants. New City Church, you guys like covenants as well. But I think there's probably some of you here who are unfamiliar with that term or that, um, you know, that, the concept of a covenant, or maybe you've heard that word before, you know that idea, but it's been some time since you kind of thought about that concept. We start with covenants because covenants are foundational to the Lord's gathering salific work. Now, it's its most simplest form. A covenant is sort of a contractual agreement between two parties. And what happens in a covenant is that people are, are binding themselves to each other. So one side, they say they're going to do X, and one side, they'll say they're doing Y. That's as much algebra I'm ever going to do with the rest of my life, X and Y. They, they're binding themselves together, saying, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this. And if one side, side X says, like, if they break their end of the bargain, the covenant states that consequences will follow. That's there will be a payment that will be required because they didn't uphold their bargain, now, the Bible is full of amazing, wonderful, wonderful things. But one of the incredible things we learn about in Scripture is that God made covenants with the people that he had created. Now, think about that for a second. 
the God who is the, the master and the sustainer of all things made agreements. He made binding covenants with the people that he had created. People who in no way were his equals or ever would be his equal. Or, and these are people that he owes nothing to. And yet, God willingly made covenants with these people. This is one of the things that's unique to only Christianity. Because other world religions would never imagine that a deity would stoop so low or would bind himself to a non-deity in this way. If you're familiar with you know, old Greek or Roman mythologies, there's lots of different stories where you know, the gods came down, they interacted with humans, but it was only for selfish gain. It was never for really the good of the people that they were coming to. It was just to help themselves out. So in that sense, Christianity is incredibly different than what those mythologies would have said. So then we asked, so what did these covenants that God made man entail? Like what did they were told to do something? What was it they were supposed to do? Well, verses 1 and 2 of Isaiah 56 certainly feel like covenantal language. Starting in verse 1, man's side of the agreement, they were supposed to keep justice and to do, or other translations say, to practice righteousness. If we move to verse 2, it says that man was supposed to honor and keep the Sabbath, to keep it holy, and then they were to keep himself or his hand from doing any evil. So if, if man did these things, then the passage says they'll be blessed as a result of the covenant. And the, we see some examples of these blessings in further in the passage in verse 5 and verse 7. In verse 5, it talks about being given an everlasting name, which we'll spend some time talking about in a second. And then in verse 7, it says that man would be brought to the holy mountain of God where he would be made joyful and his sacrifices would be accepted. And in turn, for the people's obedience to the covenant, so you know, the, that's X, and then you got God's side. God said he would bring about salvation, that he would bring about deliverance. And we see that sort of message all throughout the prophetic books. However... If you know your Bible at all, like if you've read like any bits of it, you'll know that very rarely do the people of God, which we need to make sure we say the people that should have known better, very rarely did they turn away from evil. Very rarely would I say that their behavior was just or righteous. In fact, most times when Israelites were described, they were described in the same way as their pagan neighbors where their pagan neighbors were doing this, the Israelites were doing the same thing, just maybe a little, they were going to church on Sundays. So think, just for example, let's think about one key, one example of this is the Israelites in, um, during the reign of King Josiah in Second Chronicles 34. Now, in the, in the line of kings of Judah and Israel, Josiah was one of the very few good ones. And leading up to his reign, kind of before he became king, the temple of the Lord had become had fallen into complete disarray. It was a mess. And it was in such bad shape that the people actually said, or Josiah commanded that they have a they start a project to restore and clean up the temple. If they if they had cameras back then, they would have filmed this whole project and they would have called it like extreme temple makeover 
probably, I, I was thinking too, like probably hosted by like Ryan Sheepskin or something like that. I, I don't know if I would watch or not. But so as they're restoring the temple, 2 Chronicles 34 verse 14 talks about how they found the law of the Lord. What do you mean they found it? Well, that implies that they lost it, that they actually lost the word of God. They lost the word of their covenant partner. These people were in no way trustworthy. These were not the kind of people that you would want to co-sign on a loan with. On paper, it makes absolutely no sense as to why, the, so why God would make a covenant with these people. Like, why would God do that? The answer is simple, but I think it's very profound. God made covenants with his people because he loves his people. God is not naive. God didn't just assume that, you know, once he made this agreement, then the people would get their acts together and then there would be no issues at all. Right? He's, he's God. There's not a moment in history that God doesn't know. God knew that Adam and Eve would sin. He, know, he knew that Noah would sin even after being saved from a worldwide flood. He knew that Abraham, you know, Father Abraham, we have a little song about him. He, God knew that he would sin. God knew that Moses would deal with insecurity and pride. God knew that the people would di- completely disregard the words of the prophets. They even threw Jeremiah, the poor guy, into a pit because he was telling them what God had said. But despite knowing all things... God still willingly chose to bind himself to his people because of his great love for them. God called them his people while fully knowing that they would be unfaithful. That God, through his covenant, said that even though his people would be disobedient and uphold, like not uphold their end of the bargain, God would still remain faithful. So why, why do we have to go into all this covenant background? Why is it important to think about as we're talking about God, God gathering people, what does that have to do with covenants? Well, we start with covenants because covenants help us to better understand the mind and the will of God. Covenants teach us that God works within the confines of his covenant. Sometimes we talk about, you know, can God do this, God God do this, God can do all things. Actually, God cannot work outside of his covenants because that would go against his character. But God has confined himself to work in the confines of his covenant. And God is not swayed by whims or frivolous desires like we, we so often are. But God gathers individuals to himself according to those covenantal standards that he has ordained, not according to the capabilities or the worthiness of those whom he has called. The people that God made covenants with in the Bible, the people of Israel, they were messy and broken people. But it was to these people that God said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He told them, I will be your God, 
and you will be my people. And it's these words that God speaks to us today as well. Where God calls us and he says, be my people. He welcomes us into covenant with him. But when we examine ourselves, we realize that just like the Israelites, we will never be able to uphold our end of the bargain of this covenant. Because our lives aren't marked by holiness or goodness or anything, fill in your word. But our lives are marked by sin and brokenness and rebellion towards God. All right, even if on our most well-behaved days, right, we, as parents, we all love it when our kids have great-behaved days, but we're thinking about ourselves. On our most well-behaved days, we manage to sin more times than we would like to admit. But we remember that this covenant-making, this covenant-upholding God makes covenants not because of our worthiness, but because of his great love for us. And it's because of God's great love for those whom he has called that he came to earth, that Jesus took on that human likeness and lived a perfect and righteous life, all in order to die for us, to to pay that covenant price that was owed for our sins. You know, this Jesus, this, this God himself, died for you. And now he calls you to be his people, to to follow him. He calls us to experience the blessings of God, to to be free from the burden of our sins, to have purpose and direction in our lives, and and to someday to be able to physically see, to hear God who saved you. God calls us to be his people And what an amazing thing it is to have been given a covenantal call by the king of the stars. So this morning, I want to ask you guys a question. Don't shout it out because it's for you, not me. But have you ever considered the covenant of God? Have you ever thought about how the, the God of the universe has looked at you and willingly decided to make a covenant with you while fully knowing the depth of your sin and your unfaithfulness? Have you ever considered the great love of God and just done that, just lift up your hands humbly saying, Lord, receive me into, my, into your flock. I don't deserve to be there, but let me in. If there's someone here this morning that's never done that, has never asked God for deliverance, let today be the day of your salvation. Because God is actively saving sinners as we're speaking. So be saved and enter into this wonderful covenantal relationship with God. And then to those of you that have answered the call of God, Maybe there's some of you who've been here, been a Christian for a long time, have been part of the gathered people of God. I want to ask you a different question. Are you living as one who has been gathered? And what, I'm, what I mean by that is, does your life show evidence that you care, 
that you're in a covenantal relationship with God? Or is your life more like the Israelites in the days of Josiah? Meaning that the word of God is absent, it's been lost from your heart and your mind. We're, we're getting kind of close to the point, the halfway point of the year, which is crazy to think about, and which means that we've, it's been about four months since we forgot our New Year's resolutions. No shame, I, I didn't do one either. Um, so what I want us to do, I want us to encourage and I want to challenge us today to make a mid-year resolution. And what that resolution, I want us to resolve to be people of the covenant. To live as those who have been gathered. Because just imagine what would happen in our personal lives, in our neighborhoods, in our families, in our church, if this was the resolution of God's people. So that a, a year from now, we would all come back and hear story after story after story of how marriages had been strengthened. And parents just saying, I've never parented better in my life. Not as a pride thing, but... How children and teenagers had grown exponentially in their faith. And how stories of people were being saved and converted and gathered into God's kingdom. And every story demonstrating that God had been glorified through it. That's an exciting thought. So what I encourage you to do is let's, let's make that resolution to be people of the covenant. And then let's start writing down stories so that we can come back on January 1st or May 14th and share all the ways that God has worked in our lives. So, so this passage, it tells us a lot about how God gathers his people according to his covenant. But Isaiah 56 goes on to show us that this covenant was not meant for a single nation or a single people group. Now, yes, we have to admit that you know, God made his covenant with Abraham, and he told Abraham that he would make him into a great nation with his descendants as gray as the sea sand on the seashore. And the Old Testament clearly shows that the Israelites were the chosen people of God. But Isaiah 56 does something beautiful in the fact that it shows us that God's people were not simply made up of by the people of Israel. It shows us that God's covenant and his blessings actually extended to all the different peoples of the world. So what scripture does, it shows us that God's gathering process breaks boundaries. One key example where we see that um, come to fruition is the way that the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt in the Exodus account. Now, quick, before, quickly, before we get to Exodus 15, uh, or excuse me, Exodus, we go to Genesis 15, because ex- Genesis 15 is where God made a promise, a covenantal promise to Abraham. And in verse 13 and 14 of Genesis 15, he's... Or, Verses 13 to 14 to 15, man, that's confusing. Um, This says this, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. God, God is telling Abraham this in the middle of a blessing. 
So God's like, I'm going to make you in a great nation. I'm going to give you all these possessions. By the way, I'm also going to have you, your descendants are going to be a slave for years. Abraham's like, what? I don't really like that part. But, so he was probably a little confused. But sure enough, right, years later, the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt. However, if you, if you know the Exodus account, you'll remember that God sent Moses to Pharaoh. He told him to let my people go. Pharaoh didn't listen. And after a series of 10 terrible plagues, God, or Pharaoh finally relented and the people left Egypt. So why do I mention Exodus in our context of covenants? Well, because when the Israelites left Egypt, after Pharaoh had finally let them go, with all sorts of possessions and treasures, just as God had promised Abraham, these people were not alone. This is Exodus 12, 37 through 38. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Sukkoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides men, women and children. This is the key part. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. So what we have to ask ourselves, like, who made up this mixed multitude? And the answer is non-Israelites. These were foreigners, These were men and women who had witnessed the power of God in Egypt. And they said, you know, the God of the Hebrews is the one true God, and he's worth following and leaving my homeland to go serve. So what we see is that even before the Israelites had entered into the promised land, foreigners had been in the midst of the people of God. And in Isaiah 56, Isaiah in this prophetic book, which was... Um, through the divine inspiration of of God, he made sure to include a section that was meant to encourage those who had been grafted into the people of God. Now, it's interesting. We have two different kind of people groups that were mentioned or highlighted. We have a general kind of a foreigner category, and then we also have a kind of a one that surprises some of us is in eunuchs. So So we'll start with the foreigner. This is verse 3 of Isaiah 56. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. We can hear kind of this, the insecurity and the fear in the voice of this person who's speaking. Because they are almost convinced that God is going to separate him or her from the people of God. And that fear undoubtedly was fueled by the voices of those who weren't foreigners, right? Those people that were, you know, the natural descendants of Abraham, the real people of God. And those, you know, these people would have got along great with the Pharisees of Jesus' day. However, we have to note that this foreigner meant referred to in the passage is not some disinterested person who is simply living in the midst of the Israelites, Now, this foreigner has joined himself to the Lord. Verse 7 gives us some details of what this foreigner was doing. It said that he ministered to God. He loved the name of the Lord. He's the Lord's servant. He honors the Sabbath day, not profaning it, and he holds fast to the covenant of God. This text tells us that this foreigner was living a life of obedience to God. And no one who joins himself or herself to God in this way will ever be turned away. You know, it didn't matter that they had, this person had formerly worshipped idols, or had once been an enemy of Israel, or had been, they were unable to recite the Torah word for word. 
But the fact was that they had turned to God. They turned from those old ways, and now they were living their lives in obedience to God. So they, what they, they had rejected their former gods, their pagan lifestyles. They joined themselves to God, and now they would never be separated from God again. Now, when we read this passage the first time, you know, three years ago, um, the end of verse 7 sounded probably a little bit familiar to some of you, right? It said, For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Now, this probably sounded familiar because Jesus quoted this in Matthew 21 when he was clearing out the temple. And he said this, he, he quoted this verse in large part because the money changers and the animal salesmen, all the people that were, you know, he was clearing out, they had set up shop in a place called the Court of the Gentiles. In other words, the, the place where the foreigners, the non-Israelites were allowed to enter and to worship, like that place had become unusable because of all the chaos that was happening there. And Jesus was furious because those who were trying to join themselves to God in his house were unable to do so. Again, we just can see the love of God shining through when we realize that everyone that calls out to God will be heard and listened to. He loves them. He cares about them. So we have this general kind of foreigner category in Isaiah 56, but then we also have this other one, the eunuchs. Now, there was different kinds of eunuchs that existed in those days. Some were you know, born with a physical ailment. Others had been made eunuchs by probably a foreign king, to kind of a way to subdue them. And, but both types, you know, the person that was born like that or had been forced to become one, these people would have dealt with immense amount of shame and depression in their lives. They would have felt broken and unfulfilled regularly. Even in our passage, we have this phrase, the, the eunuch said, I, behold, I am a dry tree. These men would never have children, which meant that they would never be able to continue their family line, which they probably felt like their family tree would actually die with them. And before they knew it, they would be forgotten. But what this text does is it gives a note of encouragement to this people group. It teaches us that eunuchs did not have to be defined by this physical brokenness. That their lives didn't have to be destined for emptiness and hopelessness. Because to those who kept the day of the Lord holy, who did what pleased God and held fast to his covenant, God said he would make a monument, a memorial in his house. That, he, that this person would be given the name that is greater than a son or a daughter, an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. What a, what a beautiful picture that is. To, to the one who is so afraid that they'll soon be forgotten, God says, I will make a memorial for you in my house. In the place that God is preparing for his people, for his individual people, he's preparing a memorial for that person. To the one who's viewed as an outcast or a misfit, maybe even a slave, God gives a name that's better than son or daughter. A name that will never be cut off, never, a name that will never be lost, but will be spoken by God himself as he calls us from his throne. Just think about quick for a couple of applications in our context. Imagine how encouraging these verses would be to someone who has been a product of a caste system. 
who's been viewed by others for their entire life as scum or worthless, haven't been given names like untouchables or unmentionable. Now they can hear that they will receive and be given an everlasting name that shall never be cut off. Imagine how these verses can be an encouragement to someone who's called to a life of singleness. All right, marriage is a, is a great thing from God. But unfortunately, the church has elevated marriage up to a level that it makes almost singleness as a kind of a blemish on somebody's record. I think we must never forget that the Apostle Paul commended singleness, uh, and the, like he, he himself was single. And the church needs those people that are single, just as it needs the people that are married. And our passage reminds us that those who are single can bear much fruit for the sake of the gospel. You know, the foreigners and the eunuchs were viewed as outcasts in Israel. And yet God in his word said that he gathers them to himself and that he's not finished gathering them. There are more to be gathered into the flock, a flock that's comprised of the outcast and the broken, the needy, the poor, the frail. Most people who the world would view as insignificant or useless Instead, God calls them extremely loved by God. One, one image I like to think about, not too regularly because it's a Christmas movie, but if you've ever seen the old Rudolph movie where they have the, the island of misfit toys, in some ways that's a good image of heaven because it's full of broken, useless people that God has brought together for his, because of his great love for them. So God's gathering process, it's covenantal, it breaks boundaries, and lastly, it is complete. All those who God has called and all who he has gathered will be brought to his holy mountain. And it says that they will be welcomed into a house of prayer where their sacrifices will be accepted by God. God brings his people into heaven, into his everlasting house, which is a place of unending joy where we will be with God and we will be called the everlasting name. If you, are, if you have been gathered, if you are a Christian, your status is secure. Which means that there's nothing that we can do or say to lose that status of saved. Because it's not due to our work that we're saved in the first place or that we received this work of Christ. We receive the status of secured because of the perfect and full work of Jesus Christ. We don't serve a God who leaves tasks unfinished. But we serve a God who made covenants with his people, which he fully intended to uphold. So friends, I want to encourage us this morning. May we feel like outcasts or broken toys in the world. Because our world, this world, is not our home. May we be constantly reminded that we have an everlasting house that's waiting for us where we will someday go and we will be able to see our Savior, our King, face to face and we can hear him call out to us by name. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we are in awe that you would make a covenant with us, a people that is unworthy, undeserving, 
And yet you loved us so much that you're willing to go out and die for us in order that we can be saved. Help us to act as people that have been gathered, Lord. Help us to remember that there are people out there that you are still gathering who need to be, be spoken to, who need to be called and loved. And we ask that you make us um, your hands and your feet this week. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.